Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. There was a little kid that uh, mom and dad had put to bed. He was a little guy. And they put him in bed, and, and shortly after, they just heard this loud sobbing coming from his room. And so they ran in to see what was going on and what was wrong, and, and he was just drenched in tears. He was beside himself because he had taken a penny off the nightstand and swallowed it, and he thought he was going to die. And so he was crying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And his dad tried his best to console him, but he, he would not be, you've had a kid swallow a penny, haven't you? Well, he did his best, but the, he, the kid would not be consoled. Uh, the dad tried to tell him, you're not going to die, because the dad knew what all parents knew, know about those things, that eventually it would show up again. <laughs> Worse for the wear, but it would show up again. But the kid would not be comforted. And so the dad did the old pulling a penny behind the ear trick. And he, he did the little magic trick, and he pulled out a penny, and he goes, see? I got it. And the little guy was so delighted at his dad's magical ability to solve problems that he reached over on the nightstand, grabbed a quarter, popped it in his mouth, <laughs> and said, do it again. So sometimes dads are called on to do the impossible, I guess, is the point of that. I, I was with some young guys the other day, uh, J.R. and I were, and we were trying to impress on them that the Bible answers all your questions and that anything you need to know, it's in there. And, and that includes some pretty specific things, too, like being a dad, being a father. And the Bible does that largely by examples, because in the Bible, there are no shortage of good dads. There are tons of good dads in the Bible. Did you know that? And the dads are always at their best, good dads, in difficult times. Abraham was a dad, a father, who faced some very difficult decisions in life. He was told by God to go to a place that he would show him, but I'm not going to tell you exactly where it is until you get there. He had to make the decision to follow God. Difficult. Later on, when he had his first son, his promised son, his man-child that he had longed for for so many years, that son came of some age and God told him, take that son to the top of a mountain and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham obeyed. In the providence of God, in the wisdom of God, Abraham's hand was stopped as he was plunging the dagger down to his son's throat. We know the end of that story, but Abraham did not. And he had a difficult decision to make there, didn't he? Trust God. Isaac, another good father, 
Where Abraham had difficult decisions, Isaac has difficult sons. He has two boys that almost, not almost, literally from birth are at each other's throats. And it's a rivalry that will grow over time to where when they're young adults, it blossoms into full-blown hatred to the point that they have to go their separate ways and live in separate countries even. And the rift between those two brothers was so great and the hatred was so profound. Later on, though they made up and they reconciled, the germ was already hatched in their families. And the turmoil that you and I see in the Middle East today that will never be solved is because of those two sons, difficult sons that Isaac had. Jacob, he had difficult in-laws. They cheated him, they lied to him, they swindled him, not once but a series of times over a number of years until he finally got so fed up he had to leave, take it all and leave. Because of Jacob's early dysfunction around his brother and his family, his mom and his dad, because of his early character flaws that later on were corrected, but because of his early character flaws, he had dysfunctional kids who grew up to become dysfunctional adults to the point that they tried to murder each other. David, another father in the Bible, who was dysfunctional himself in so many different ways. He didn't get the fathering thing right until he was older, much older, with his final child, a child that will eventually die. Solomon. Solomon had a difficult schedule. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, which Solomon wrote later in life, and you see all of the things that man was involved in he was involved in science and engineering and building and governing and, and warfare. He was involved in learning and teaching, and he was just busy all the time. His schedule was overloaded. He had a very difficult schedule, that father did. Another famous father, Hosea, had a difficult marriage. Hosea had married a woman who had been involved in prostitution, but he fell in love with her. And he took her in and he lavished his attention on her and her ways changed for a while. But she went back into her old lifestyle and it broke his heart. He couldn't find her for the longest time. He spared no expense searching for her. And finally he located her. Her manner of living had eaten her alive. And she was wasted and broken and she was being sold as a household slave on an auction block. When he found her, he bought her. Hosea did. And brought her back home. And he loved her and restored her. Difficult marriage. Joshua faced difficult decisions. He moves into a new land with all of these people, a job that he never asked for to be in charge. But he is in charge. He finds himself at the head of a rebellious nation where so many are falling away from God and saying, I will choose another God in this new land. And he faces the difficult decision, choose this day 
whom you will serve. And he declares, Joshua does, as for me and my house, I don't care what anybody else does, we will serve the Lord. Difficult decisions. Think about Job, another great father, good father. Talk about difficulty. What in Job's life was not difficult? But he was such a good father that even after his children were grown and had their own families, were securely on their own, he would pray for them every day. And regularly he would sacrifice to God for them on their behalf, not his behalf, on theirs. In case maybe they've done something that's offended God, I want my kids to be okay. And he gets the worst of the worst news that any parent could get. All of his kids that he loves, they're all grown and they're together at one of their homes having a celebration of some kind when a catastrophic act of nature kills them all, all at once. And Job is devastated. And he goes into such a deep funk that there's some question about whether he will ever come out of it or not. All good fathers. You go into the New Testament, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, about whom Jesus said, nobody greater has ever lived than John the Baptist. Zechariah was his father. And you know about Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Those were dads who had difficult assignments. So the word talks about good dads, but they are at their best in their difficult times, difficult decisions, difficult children, dysfunctional children even, dysfunctional themselves, difficult marriages, difficult decisions, difficult assignments. When you look at that list of those Bible dads, you're not looking at a list of perfect men, are you? Because they were far from perfect. They were all of them flawed in great ways. But you are looking at a list of men who heard God and they took Him seriously and they took Him seriously into their jobs as fathers. Deuteronomy 6, there's a passage that the Jewish people refer to as the Shema, from the first word of the passage here, hear, O Israel, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then it's followed by what everybody called in those days, in Jesus' day, in our day, the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is no greater commandment than that. And in that same passage that tells us what the greatest commandment is, it's our, our, our approach, our love, our putting God first and loving Him with all of our strength. In that same passage, fathers specifically are told, now impress that important thing on all of your children, on your sons and daughters, and on your grandchildren, Dad. Make sure that they know that there is nothing greater in this life than knowing and loving God. However you've got to do it, make sure you do it. And then that same sentiment is echoed in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 6, there's a 
an extended passage about how we're to behave within the family. The Bible scholars call it the Hausstaffel, a German word for house table, the, the rules of the house. And right in the middle of the rules of the house is counsel to dads, to fathers, toward children, to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's the responsibility of a good dad. So when you think about it, a godly dad, a Christian dad, is really an instrument in the hands of God, isn't he? He's a tool, a powerful tool in God's hands. There is no replacing a father. My dad taught me a lot of things. And on Father's Day, I'm thinking about my dad. One of my sisters posted a picture of my dad from his army days. So I'm thinking about my dad today, and I'm thinking about the things he taught me. He taught me a lot of things. Um, hard work. It's important to work hard. It's important to stay busy. He taught me to excel. Whatever you do, do your best to excel at it. Don't be mediocre, but be the very best you can possibly be. And if you can be better than somebody else, be better than somebody else. Excel at what you do. He taught me to protect your family. That was very important to him. He taught me things like be curious. And, and your whole life long, want to learn things. He, he, he taught me, too, not to talk about your accomplishments too much. Don't talk about them all the time. But among all the things he taught me, and <clears throat> there were many more than that, among the most important was face things. Don't run. Whatever it is, good or bad, face it. Deal with it. Don't sneak away from it. It's June 1941. Six months before a sneak attack on Pearl Harbor will plunge the world, literally the world, into a war that would be called a world war. And that is a war that would affect everybody and would affect us all for generations. I can tell you as the son of a combat soldier that it affected me that my dad had been in that war, just like it affected every boy on the block whose dad had been in the war. We used to wonder, why does our dad whack us so hard? Well, it probably had something to do with their experiences. But it's six months before that event when the world will go to war. And the world is not thinking at all about war at that point. And all of America... Nearly all of America, on a June night, 1941, is focused on an 18 by 18 foot square of canvas, white canvas. And they're focused on a heavyweight championship fight. As Billy Kahn, the light heavyweight champion, climbs into the ring, he bounces into the ring. Billy Kahn deserved to be the light heavyweight champion. He was the consummate boxer. He, was, he would pull his opponents apart more like a surgeon than a fighter. And he never made a bad move. Everything was like 
poetry in motion with him. Irish Billy Kahn. Not bounding into the ring or bouncing into the ring, but more like shuffling because that's what Joe Lewis did best. He shuffled. He almost never lifted his feet off the canvas. He shuffled. Lewis entered the ring. He's the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, the longest reigning heavyweight champion ever, the greatest of the heavyweight champions, in my estimation. If you want to argue about it, I'll I'll argue with you. He reigned for 11 years. He fought everybody. He fought all of the greats, the near greats, and the not so greats. He gave anybody a chance. He defended his title many more times than most people have a career. He was great. Joe Lewis had cat-like movements. He would shuffle along until you made a mistake. And you only needed to make one. And then pop, pop. It was over. He was a phenomenal athlete. Both of them were. And this is for the heavyweight championship of the world that night. And all of America is focused on that event. Billy Kahn knows that he cannot go toe-to-toe with Joe Lewis. And so he's up on his toes, and he moves, and he's in, and he's out. And like I said, he's more like a surgeon. He's strategic in everything he does. And as the rounds move on, he's piling up the points. He is, on everybody's scorecard, the clear winner as they go into the 13th round. He has won almost all of the 12 rounds, and Lewis has never looked worse. He's never had a chance because Billy has not made any mistakes. In fact, in the last round, in the end of the 12th round, Billy Kahn had, had landed a right hand on Joe Lewis that rocked his world, staggered him, and caused Billy Kahn to believe incorrectly, I can knock him out. On his best day, he couldn't. He only, he only needed to last three more rounds, and he would be the heavyweight champion. But he decided to try and knock Joe Lewis out. And so he went into the 13th round, and as he wound up for his payday punch, he dropped his hand, made just a small error, and Lewis staggered him with a right hand. And throughout that round, he never recovered from that punch. And with just two seconds left in that 13th round, Joe Lewis took advantage of his flaw and knocked him out. If he could have lasted two more seconds, but he couldn't. The post-fight interview, they asked Joe, what happened in there? This is one of the memories I have of my dad, too, because he would talk about Joe Lewis. He had seen Joe Lewis. And he would say at the end of every fight, Joe had the same analysis. Joe, what did you do? I hit him with a left. And he said that, but they pressed him for more. And he said, well, going into the fight, I knew that Billy could run. But I also knew that in that ring, he couldn't hide. I knew I would catch him. You can run, but you can't hide. You see, Dad, you are a good dad. Not because you're perfect. Not because you've never raised your voice or done something kind of boneheaded. That's not what makes you a good dad. You're a good dad because you didn't run and you didn't hide. 
That's what makes you a good dad. And in the Word of God, there are plenty of examples. Abraham, Hosea, and on and on the list goes. Plenty of examples of good fathers, but the greatest example of a good father is God Himself. God Himself. In fact, at one point, Jesus will sum up how good a father he is. And encourage the rest of us dads by saying, if you then know how to give good gifts to your children as an earthly father, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those that ask him? We've got a good father, don't we? Moms are important. Moms are supremely important. And we honor our moms for sure. In fact, it occurs to me that you and I would not be here without mom. But dads are the ones, listen to me, who share a name with God himself, Father. So dad, happy Father's Day. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.